0: Uh, The second thing I want to talk to you about this morning is all to do with coronavirus. I'm sure that many of you are concerned uh, with coronavirus. It has been in the news and on social media for the last couple of months in a really big way. Uh, And there are widespread concerns about what's going to happen. Um, And likely you may be a little concerned as well. I just want to give you a little bit of information about how we're responding as a church and then a little bit of uh, some of the plans that might come up. I want to encourage you also to think about how you can love each other as we face this virus. And the main point that I want you to hear this morning is this, please don't be panicked by the virus, but do be prepared. And so we as a church, we're implementing some changes here um, so that we as a this is a place that's safe for us to keep growing. Um, One of the things that we've done is that medical experts tell us to limit our physical contact. So uh, you will notice, and I I keep encouraging you to kind of refrain from handshakes and embraces and those sorts of things this morning. Uh, Also, uh, we've uh, uh, been advised that it's really great to keep your hand hygiene uh, up to order. And so uh, there is soap in the bathrooms and hot water to wash your hands there. We also have the blue hand gel at different places around the church. Please, please make use of that. And we're also just thinking about the other ways in which we can limit shared contact. So you would have noticed today that your name tag was written kindly for you and we'll do those sorts of things in order to try and limit the amount of shared contact we have. At times like this, it's really valuable, I think, that we're part of a network of churches. Um, and I want to encourage you to let you know that the network and other people have been considering what steps we might do in the weeks to come if the situation worsens. Let me just let you know that there are plans already in place for how some of those things might happen and if... uh I need to let you know about those plans. I'll update you as the week progresses or as the weeks progress. It'd be a really good thing at this time to make sure that we have your contact details as part of our database so that we can let you know what's going on so that we can advise you about potential changes that might happen. The best way to give us your contact details if you don't think we've already got them is to fill out the communication slip that's attached to your leaflet and then pop it in the everything box and we'll be able to add your details to our database. So those are just some of the practical things that we've been thinking about and considering to do with the virus. I also think it's worth just addressing what are some of the pastoral things that we might do in relation to the virus. And I think the first thing I want to say is that we should pray. We should pray that God would stop the spread of the virus. We should pray for our leaders who are making tough choices at the moment. We should pray for those who have been entrusted to care for us, for our medical practitioners and for our emergency workers. We should also love each other. The next few weeks are likely to be difficult for many of us. This is a great chance over the next few weeks for us to grow more like Jesus. It'd be great that if at the end of this crisis we were able to say, as individuals, we are more like Jesus because of what we've been through. Please keep an eye out for each other as well. Keep an eye out for those who aren't as strong or as fit, both physically and mentally, And as you can, please care and love those people. And I think also we want to keep trusting in God, trusting that he is in charge, trusting that he's sovereign in this world, knowing that we can cast our anxieties on him because he cares for us. So I'm going to pray for us now as we just think through those things. Almighty God, we know that you are sovereign and in control of this world we know you as the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. We know you as the great I am. We praise you as the God who's created the world and us as people who fill the world, we give you thanks that we are just creatures and you are God. Father, we pray that in your kindness you'd bring an end to this virus. We pray for those who lead this country that they would make wise and well-informed decisions. We pray for our frontline workers, for our Nurses and doctors and emergency service workers who will be tackling this head on. Please give them strength and fortitude and health. And Father, in the midst of our own uncertainty, please help us trust in your promises. Help us lean into the hope that we have in resurrection. Help us to live like Jesus, being sacrificial yet loving each other, even when it's costly. And help us also to be shepherds who care for each other as you care for us. We pray that you would help us as a church to live and think about this looming crisis in a way that demonstrates our gospel convictions. We pray this in the strong and powerful name of Jesus. Amen.
1: We're going to read the Bible together now. And the Bible reading today is from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 to 28. And that can be found in the Black Bibles and the chairs on page uh, 1787 and it'll be on the screen behind me as well so 1 Corinthians chapter 15 uh, 1 to 28 on uh, page 1787 now brothers and sisters I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you which you received and on which you have taken your stand by this gospel you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preach to you Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. And last of all, he appeared to me also, as to one abnormally born. For I am the least of the apostles, and do not even deserve to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Whether then it is I or they... This is what we preach and this is what you have believed. But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, then how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless and so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God, for we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the death came also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in turn, Christ, the firstfruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. Then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father, after he has destroyed all dominion, authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For he has put everything under his feet. Now when it says that everything has been put under his feet, <coughs> pardon me, sorry, it is clear that this does not include God himself who put everything under Christ. When he has done this, then the son himself will be made subject to him who has put everything under him so that God may be all in all.
2: Thanks, thanks so much Meredith. Uh, it'd be great to have your Bibles open at 1 Corinthians 15. We'll, we'll move around to a few other spots in the Bible, but I'll throw those verses up on the screen and when we come to those. But we'll, the main part we're going to be looking at this morning is here. There's an outline in the leaflet uh, that'll give you some idea where we're going. And, uh, if that's useful to you, then, then wonderful. Uh, it was a few weeks ago that I, uh, arrived home. And Sue was sitting in our sunroom with our grandson, Ollie. So it's a picture of Ollie on the screen. Ollie's turning three today. So this is a couple of weeks ago. And when I came into the sunroom, Ollie looked up. And this is what he said. Papa, you're alive! You know, like that. (laughs) And then he turned to Sue and said, Papa's alive! Papa's alive! Like that. And then he rushed over, sort of, all sort of teary, emotional, quivery, and gave me this big hug right? It was quite extraordinary. And I, so all sorts of thoughts were going through my head at this point, you know. First one was this, well I know I'm getting old, but you know, like, <laughs> so, yeah, uh, I wouldn't have thought every time I came to the room it was a miracle that I was still alive from day to day, you know. Or, or maybe I thought he, he's more sort of media savvy than what I thought, you know. Uh, he'd been picking up on the, the coronavirus staff realised I was in a risk category and so was just relieved, you know. But I thought probably a bit beyond a three-year-old, you know. Um, here's the backstory. OK, so the grandchildren had been around. I'd left a leaflet from a funeral sitting on the bench and there was a picture of the person who'd died and the kid said, what's this? And so Sue had explained what was going on. Ollie then innocently... Well, probably not so innocently, actually said to Sue, where's your papa? Right? Where's your papa? Sue thought that he was asking a question about her father or her grandfather. And so explained that her father had gotten old and then he'd been quite sick and then he'd died. Right? <laughs> and so you get where this was all going. Ollie was asking, where's your papa? Where am I? Right? And Sue thought it was her father and that's why he was so uh, distressed and emotional and happy and everything, you know, for a three-year-old trying to process it all. But friends, whether you're three or you're 103, somewhere in between, you know that death has enormous impact on you. Right? You're aware of that, whether it's because you're attending a funeral, uh, whether it's because you're in a situation like we are in today where... Uh, something like the coronavirus has exposed the paper thin grasp, sorry, excuse the paper thin grasp we have on uh, life. You know, the, uh, the reality that we face our mortality in this situation. Well, whether it's just because death is the ultimate questioner when it comes to the meaning of life. Yeah, you know, what is the point of existence when you know the end point is that you die? You know, what, what are you building? with that goal in mind. And that's why for three weeks we're going to be spending time considering what does it mean for Jesus to have risen from the dead? Uh, What is the impact of Jesus' resurrection? Uh, It's an impressive event, no question about that. But what we're going to explore is how it intersects with our future. See, what does it say actually about death and what lies beyond it? In week three, as I mentioned before, what I want to consider is how does it intersect with our lives now? It's not just a future thing but the idea of being raised with Christ now, uh, his power at work in us. But today what I want to do is to focus down, particularly here in 1 Corinthians 15, and ask the question, what does it tell us about Jesus himself? Uh, less to do with us and more to do with him. All right. So that's that's where we're going. So let's, let's tuck into it and see how we go. Um, The first thing I want to say is the resurrection cannot be optional. Uh, When you go, uh, if you do go to a barista and order a coffee, uh, as I do, if you go to someone, a barista who doesn't know you, not a regular, uh, they may say, do you want sugar with that or not? See, sugar is an optional thing. But when I go to a barista and order a flat white, no barista has ever said to me, will that be with or without coffee? You know, uh, that's a nonsensical sort of question to ask. And it's the same when we come to the resurrection. Resurrection is essential as you think about what Christianity is on about. Uh, In 1 Corinthians 15, we get this sort of short course on the resurrection. It's sort of Resurrection 101, as you read through this chapter. And it appears the sort of background question that the Corinthians were asking, the church was asking, was in the light of the fact that Jesus has not yet returned and that some of our friends have already died, uh, what's happened to them? You know, how should we think about them right now? That seems to be the sort of background question and a cluster of issues lying around that. And so Paul starts to talk to them about the answers to this question that they're raising. In verse 1 he says, I want to remind you of the gospel that I preached to you. So pick up He's going over old ground remind you this is not not new stuff and when he talks about the gospel he's talking about God's good news summary that is the core of what it means to be Christian in terms of what we believe and so he goes on verse 3 Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures verse 4 he was buried then in verse 4 he was raised on the third day And from verses 5 to 9, Paul backs it up with sort of a grandstand of witnesses who can uh, testify to the fact that Jesus was raised from the dead. But the point is, it's a package deal. You can't extract bits of it. In verse 2 it says, by this gospel, that is death and resurrection, you are saved. If you remove the resurrection, you have a problem. There's a game called Jenga that some of you may have uh, played. You can see a picture on the board. It's a tower of little rods that intersect. And the object of the game is to pull rods out of the tower without the tower collapsing. Uh, But friends, if the resurrection was one of those little rods in the Jenga block and you pull it out, the point is the whole of Christianity just collapses and falls to the ground. It's not an optional sort of part of what it means to be Christian, it's absolutely essential. But then here's the question, right? So what? see, why? Why is the resurrection so indispensable? Paul goes on to talk about this. He says, first of all, what we've got is an integrity problem. He picks up on that in verses 14 to 19 of this chapter. Uh, if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless and so is your faith. Uh, verse 15, we're found to be false witnesses or or liars. Verse 17, your faith is futile. It is a useless waste of space, is what he's saying. Or well, verse 19, Christians, if they believe that Jesus was raised and he wasn't, they're to be pitied. If Jesus didn't rise... Christianity is a waste of time. Christians are idiots, and Christians are perpetrators of a huge scam he 's not mincing his words at this point. Uh, I read an article in the newspaper the other day about a con man who had uh, ripped off several hundred thousand dollars from a, a retired couple, basically their life savings. Now, I want to say, I think that the couple, given the scam, were gullible, All right? but the con man was evil. Can I say if Christians uh, hold to the resurrection and it's not true, we are both gullible for believing in it and evil for encouraging other people to believe in it. You see, there is a double problem at this point. I remember sitting down with a friend of mine to read the Bible so he could investigate Christianity and he said to me, after we have been doing this for several weeks, he said, you know, even if it's not true about Jesus living and dying and rising from the dead, um, I think I'd still want to be a Christian because it's an excellent, he didn't use excellent, he's, but an excellent way to live. And, and I said, no, <laughs> no, that cannot be. Right, and I went and explained and actually took him to this part of the Bible. It's not an excellent way to live. It's a stupid way to live. That's the point he's making if Christ wasn't raised from the dead. But if Christ has been raised from the dead, there's still the so what question. So what? Again, when I was used to the picture of me, university days, Uh, when I became a Christian at university, this is the process I went through. I started reading the Bible and when I started I had a a trinity, right? I had Father Christmas, the Easter Bunny and Jesus, right? All basically in the same basket. I just didn't think Jesus had lived, yet alone died or risen from the dead. And then I got to a point where I thought he did live and had done extraordinary things and almost certainly had died and risen from the dead. I got to that point. But then I thought, so what? Big deal. I think mean, people do impressive things all the time don't they? Yeah, you know, if the Tokyo Olympics go ahead we'll see people do impressive things. Uh, Usain Bolt in a couple of Olympics running won both the 100 and the 200 gold. Extraordinary feat, quite a unique uh, to date feat in terms of his athletic brilliance. But you know I watched that from my lounge room in my lounge room chair I clapped and then I went to bed. Impressive, but no, it didn't make me, didn't affect me in any way. Why should the resurrection of Jesus be anything more than just amazing? Well, the Bible, what it does is it makes it clear that Jesus' resurrection is not just a spectator event that's impressive. Explore some dimensions of why it actually makes a difference. Firstly, uh, it emphasises the fact that by being raised from the dead, Jesus is both Lord and Judge. In the earliest uh, Christian preaching, the importance of the resurrection is stressed. And it's stressed because it teaches us about Jesus' identity, not just what he has done. And it teaches us about the position he holds in the plan of God. Acts chapter 2, you don't need to look it up, but I'll I'll put some verses on the the screen in a second. This is some of the earliest Christian preaching. We're at the day of Pentecost, several weeks after Jesus has been killed and raised from the dead. Uh, The Holy Spirit has fallen. Peter, one of the disciples, comes out and he preaches quite an extraordinary sermon. And he especially wants to emphasize the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. He talks about the death, but in verse 24 of Acts 2, he says this, God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. And then just a few verses later in verses, verse 33, we're told that Jesus was exalted to the right hand of God through his resurrection. And then in verse 36, again a couple of verses later, God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. So what, what is Peter saying at this point? We're saying he's the Messiah. He's the one who's been promised by God throughout the scriptures in the Old Testament. The one who would save his people, who would be their king, their great rescuer. And the point he's making here is that the Old Testament predicted that this Messiah couldn't see the decay of death. And he quotes a couple of psalms as he goes through this teaching in the scriptures. But he also mentions the fact that he is both Lord and Messiah. What does it mean for him to be the Lord? And effectively, this is a statement that Jesus is the world ruler. He's the one that God has established with all authority. Now, if If death has defeated Jesus, then he can't be Lord. Death is Lord, because death has beaten Jesus. See, for Jesus to be Lord, that is the ruler of the universe, the ruler over all things, he also has to defeat death. That's why in 1 Corinthians 15 it talks about Jesus having defeated the last great enemy, that is, death. Later on in the preaching of Acts, uh, Paul the Apostle uh, is in Athens and he's preaching to the Athenians about the Lord Jesus. And again, he emphasizes the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. In Acts 17 verse 31, he says this, God has set a day when he would judge the world with justice by the man that he has appointed And he's given proof of this to everyone. How? What's the proof? Well, by raising him from the dead. God has raised this Jesus from the dead, appointed him to rule the world, and in due course, he will judge everybody who has ever lived and everybody who has ever died. He is that appointed judge. And you understand the message here? It is, pay attention, right? Uh, I want you to imagine that you're driving along in your car and as you're driving along, you notice that there is a police car behind you with a flashing light, right? Clearly indicating you should pull over. You have a number of options at this point, right? You can pretend like you haven't noticed, you know? And just hope they go away. That's one option, you know? Uh, You could think, you know, I'll see if I can outrun the police car. You can imagine Carrie doing that with all the kids in the back, you know. We'll see if we can, you know, race away and sort of beat this police car. Um, You could pull over and have an argument with the policeman about why it was inappropriate for him or her to have pulled you over on the side of the road. But friends, it'd be really smart uh, to actually stop and listen. And the reason for that is because that, that... Policeman has been appointed by the authorities in our state with a certain power to exercise uh, the law in relation to you. And you ought to stop and pay attention and listen. And can I say, if if that's the case when it comes to law enforcement in our nation or our state, how much more when it comes to the Lord Jesus? You see, he has beaten death, it controls your life and your destiny uh, now and into the future and you will appear before his judgment throne in due course to give account. That's who Jesus is. It's no wonder at the end of that sermon in Acts 17 Paul says verse 30, God commands all people everywhere to repent. To hear to listen, to turn, and to obey. That's who Jesus is. When we come back to Acts chapter 15, uh, Paul explores a few of these, the other dimensions of what it means for Jesus to have been raised from the dead. He talks about the fact that there is forgiveness of sins. Um, you pick that up in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 17. Uh, if Christ has not been raised, then he says, You're still in your sins. Uh, the point he's making here is that if Jesus hasn't been raised from the dead, your your relationship with God is severed uh, because sin still dominates that relationship. But if you're familiar uh, with the storyline of the Bible and the teaching of the Bible, you'll know that this raises a significant question. Uh, after all, didn't Jesus die on the cross for forgiveness of sins. Isn't that the whole point of Christian teaching? I mean, he didn't rise from the dead for the forgiveness of sins. But yet here we're told that he's been raised uh, for the forgiveness of sins. If he didn't rise, then we're unforgiven. So what's the connection here? And the connection is essentially picking up the logic of the storyline of the Bible. See, so if we went back to Genesis chapter 3, uh, what you see there is the way in which sin is introduced into the world order. Uh, Adam and Eve are in the garden, created by God for a relationship with him. They opt for independence, turn their back on God. That's the nature of sin. And as a consequence of that sin, that rejection of God, death enters into the world. Sin, then Death. And what we're being told here is that if Jesus is the one who has died for sin and paid the penalty for sin, then it's essential that he must have defeated death that is a consequence of sin. If he hasn't defeated death and been raised from the dead, then he actually hasn't dealt with sin at all. It's part of the, the way the Bible puts these pieces together as a package deal. But he did rise from the dead, that's the point. And therefore, we can have confidence that death is not the end. That is, the forgiveness of sins means that death has been dealt with as well. And then he goes on, Paul, and says, Jesus promises therefore that he will raise us from the dead. Verse 20. Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. He is the first fruits. Of those who've fallen asleep. You see the point's clear, Jesus' resurrection is just not a spectacular one-off event. Uh, here's the first of many. Uh, the first fruits is just, uh, I, can't, I can't grow anything in my garden but, but I understand that first fruits means the first crop that appears, the first piece of fruit on the tree is an indication there's going to be other fruit on the tree. Same sort of image here. Christ's resurrection from the dead is an indication that the resurrection from the dead will apply to those who follow him. And particularly, he's got in mind the followers of the Lord Jesus Christ at this point. Where Jesus goes, we will go. Romans 6 verse 5 captures it in this way. It says, if we've been united with Jesus in a death like his, we shall certainly be united in a resurrection like his. And next week when we come back, I want to explore the nature of that future hope. Uh, What what does it mean that we will in the future be raised from the dead? Uh, Paul goes on and explores that in quite a bit of detail. Let me try and wrap up some of these ideas uh, and some of the implications of what we've been looking at. What does the resurrection of Jesus mean? Uh, Let me say, first of all, it rules out religion, and superstitious speculation. Apparently, the uh, the ancient Greeks and the Romans they used to have a custom of putting a coin in the mouth of a dead person in order to pay the ferryman who would transport people from the place of the living to the place of the dead. That was the sort of custom that they had. Of course, as Australians, we're we're not superstitious. Uh, we're sort of post-religion. And uh, not caught up in that sort of st- or rubbish. Uh, I think Australians are extraordinarily cynical in life and very superstitious when it comes to death. Uh, one of my professional hazards is that I take funerals, um, you know, and do that on a fairly regular sort of basis. Not a hazard at all, really, but it's a consequence of what I do. And I keep hearing uh, the sort of speculative guessing games people have when someone dies. I say things like uh, he or she is now looking down on us. Um, depending on the age profile of the person who's died, they're, they're partying with the big man. Um, or things like they're at peace. Or um, they've died but they'll always be with us in some way. Or they're in heaven doing and then whatever follows will be whatever they enjoyed doing on earth except much more in heaven you know they used to enjoy playing golf they're in heaven just hitting holes in one on par 5s all the time you know or playing bowls and the the bowl always rests against the jack you know or you know like it's just that sort of idle speculation on what heaven might be like it seems that when paul was writing to the corinthians they were speculating a bit about life after death. Uh, It talks at one stage about the fact that they were baptising living people on behalf of dead people, some sort of religious insurance uh, for the dead because they didn't know what was going on. Friends, the resurrection of Jesus is an event from history. Uh, It is real, it happened, it is factual. If you're not convinced about that... Uh, Come and see me and I'll organise to get you a book so you can research that a bit more. You need to be convinced and confident that the Lord Jesus actually did die and was raised from the dead and the circumstances around that. What it also means is that the dead will be raised. This is not an idle speculation or hope. This is a promise from God that is linked Inextricably, to the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, and therefore it is a guaranteed truth that God has indicated. We're going to look at that more carefully when we come back next week. Second thing, though, that I just want to underline is the fact that the resurrection of Jesus means that God has appointed Jesus as the judge of the whole world. Um, this is. Uh, 25 and 26 of 1 Corinthians 15, they they read this way. He must reign until he's put all his enemies under his feet and the last enemy to be destroyed is death. Does anyone know the smallest, uh, in terms of kilometrage, the smallest African nation? No, I didn't know until I looked it up. It's, um, it's I'm not sure I get the pronunciation right. It's Mayotte. Uh, it is 374 square kilometres. If you don't know, that, that nation exists. Anyone know the president of that nation? No, no. Apparently it's President Ramadani. Right? Important information for you to know. Now, as I say, I suspect no one here has ever heard of the nation or of him. Can I say Jesus rules the world now and for eternity. Uh, He is the one before whom everyone will stand on the last day and he will assess our lives in the balance. He has that authority and no one will avoid his judgment throne at all. He isn't just... The judge of Christians he's not just the sort of the king of a small group of people who call themselves believers friends what we're being told here by the virtue of Jesus resurrection is he rules the universe he rules the world he rules over the lives of every individual who has ever existed or will exist that's the sort of king that he is Now, what does that mean? Uh, if, If you're here today and you're not a person who's actually put your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, can I just say as clearly as I know how that he is still the ruler of the world and he is still the one that you will give account before and you ought to take that into account? That's what Paul, the apostle, says, in verse 30 of Acts 17, you ought to repent and be baptised, every single one of you, in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. Deal with him now because you will deal with him in due course. What about for, for believers? Friends, I, I think it is so easy for us in the culture in which we live uh, to feel a little bit under siege because of our convictions about Jesus. You know, to feel like, sure, we're followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, but sort of a bit of a private little religious thing we have over here on the side. Jesus rules his church, and I'm part of that church. Can I say that that's just not true? That is, he does rule his people and his church. I'm not saying that's not true. But he is so much more than that. Friends, he is the ruler of the nation in which we dwell. He is the ruler of the world in which this nation is a part. Uh, He is the ruler of everything and everyone. That's who he is. That's the one that we serve. That is the one who has guaranteed us life and relationship with God both now and forever. Uh, There's nothing private about what we believe. There can't be. It's impossible. Then the final thing let me just underline before I conclude, is that it does mean there is no fear of death if you've put your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, there's no question, it, it is extraordinary, isn't it, the way in which coronavirus has generated so much, so much panic and concern. And yet at one level it's not surprising. When a threat like that comes over the horizon you want to do something, don't you? Like, what do you do in the face of those uncertainties? Well, it's obvious, isn't it? You go and buy toilet paper, right? I mean, you know, like, you're going to do something or um, stuck up on food, because that'll make sure you don't get the virus, you know, having lots of pasta sauce. Uh, you know, like, you know, like, it, it's not surprising we have that sort of reaction, but but it only takes something as insignificant at in one level. I'm saying it's non-existent, but, but as insignificant as a virus to just infiltrate and turn our world upside down. Friends, we as a society, we, we euphemise about death. Uh, we try and hide it in hospitals or uh, put it behind the walls of crematoriums or bury it in beautiful gardens. Uh, we're not good at dealing with the nature of death in our world. So, Ollie... He turns three today. Uh, I was really struck by how emotionally shaky he didn't know where to laugh or cry uh, at three when he came up and just grabbed onto me and he wasn't going to let go because he'd been convinced that I was dead. And he's obviously confused at one level. You know, I heard him talking to Sue the following day and saying, Papa was a bit dead, wasn't he? You know, <laughs> you know? <laughs> He's not... He's not at this stage the sharpest theological tool in the shed, you know, but you'd expect that for a three year old, wouldn't you? But you know, what I hope I'll be able to do in the coming days and months and years, as I get older, as the reality of my death, which could happen at any time, but he'll be more aware of that as time goes on. What I want to be able to do is to talk to him about the absolute security that I have in the Lord Jesus Christ. It has conquered sin has conquered death and has assured us of life beyond the grave because of what he has achieved on our behalf you know I don't like the idea of uh, facing up to a future where I get sick uh, where my body declines and the process of dying whether it's by coronavirus or cancer or heart attack or old age uh, that's the nature of living in a world like the one in which we lived. But, friends, here in the scriptures we have clear promises. Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. And here's the first fruits of those who've fallen asleep. The first fruits of those who've fallen asleep. Friends, Christ has been raised, and we will be too. We will be. Preface, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for uh, your extraordinary promises to us in the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, promises that are founded on uh, the fact that Jesus died, he died for sins, he was raised uh, from the dead, and thereby defeated death. We thank you that you have appointed him as the lord the ruler of all time and the judge of all people and father we pray that as followers of jesus we won't treat this lightly or think that he is a uh, just um, an isolated or private reality for those of us who trust in him but the reality is he rules this world and you've demonstrated that by raising him from the dead and father we ask that you give us secure confidence in that truth as we live in a fragile world but also great confidence as we stand before those who don't believe it, uh, that we won't shy away from this truth or um, think that it's just something for us and not for others, but a reality that everyone needs to face up to. Uh, Father, help us to understand the nature of Jesus' Lordship and its implications for us. And we pray this in Jesus' name.
0: Amen. Paul, do you want to come up? We've got a few questions. Thank you for texting in your questions. I love getting questions. I think it shows that you're interacting. I really think questions are a great thing. I love it even more when someone else gets to answer the questions. (laughs) i was
2: going to say, you love them so
0: much. Thank you, got The first question says uh, this, in Romans 4, uh, verse 25, he was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. Does that mean without the resurrection there is no atonement or propitiation? How can there be forgiveness of sins without justification?
2: And the, the short answer to that question is there can't. That is, there is no forgiveness of sins without the resurrection of the dead. Um, that is, the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, therefore the resurrection of the dead. No question about that. The, it's, it's trying to work out the, the sequence of the events. That is, uh, Jesus was not raised. I don't think the Bible ever talks about Jesus being raised for our atonement. Um, That is, I think that is all tied up with the nature of the cross. That is the forgiveness of sins that's associated with the cross. But you know that there's no forgiveness of sins or atonement with the cross if there is no resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ from the dead because the death of sin is no longer effective. So when it talks about the fact that Uh, Is delivered over to death for our sins, raised to life for our justification. The idea of justification there is being made right with God. Uh, It's a bit of a... Yeah, there's more to it than that, but essentially that's the shorthand. We're not right with God if Jesus has not been raised from the dead because ultimately, therefore, sin has not been properly dealt with because sin is still the conqueror, not the resurrection from the dead and the Lord Jesus Christ. So... It, as I was saying before, I think it's part of that, that package deal, but understanding uh, what relates to what and how they're linked together. Uh, death for sin, nature of the atonement, resurrection uh, for our justification, but the atonement and the resurrection are linked together inextricably. You can't separate them out.
0: Yep. Thank you. Um, the next question says this, if Jesus had not been raised from the dead... Would that mean that he was not sinless and therefore would not qualify to pay for our sins?
2: Yeah, and who knows? Um, that is, uh, the, the argument, if not raised from the dead, therefore not sinless, otherwise if he was sinless, he would be raised from the dead. So I can see how you can argue back in that way. I don't think the Bible ever argues forward that way. Um, so I don't think the Bible ever says that if Jesus has not been raised from the dead... Therefore, he wasn't sinless. Uh, So, you're in sort of... So, Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 says, if Christ has not been raised from the dead, therefore, 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 therefore. There's a whole series of those therefore statements. One of Paul's therefore statements is not, therefore, Jesus was sinful. Uh, I don't think uh, there in 1 Corinthians 15. I don't think the New Testament argues it that way. So, uh, maybe... But I'm not sure the Bible actually does say it unless um, whoever asked the question maybe you were thinking of a particular text. Yeah. It, yeah.
0: Great. Thanks, Thanks Paul. Thanks, mate. Paul will be around, I think, after the service for a little bit at least and back for the next couple of weeks. So please keep asking questions if you need to.